Okay, so anyone who knows me, and honestly, at this point, anyone who listens to the podcast, because I guess we've just (laughs) gotten real close around here, knows that I do not wear bras. And like, that's not some sort of an over-exaggeration. You can ask any of my friends. I truly do not ever wear bras. However, there have recently been some circumstances where like, I just have to. I've been saying yes to more things. I feel like we've been going to more events and there are just some outfits. I got to do it. And when I tell you I have finally found a bra that makes wearing one bearable. Like I'm never going to be an everyday bra wearer. It's not in the cars for me. But when I have to, the only bras I can wear are skims, which I'll get into the specific ones in a second, but we all know this comes as no surprise. Like I have been an OG diehard skims fan since day one. I am a fan of every single product they make. You know the way I feel about the underwear, the clothes, all of it. But now adding bras to the mix, specifically the Fits Everybody t-shirt bra, because You guys know the way I feel about the Fits Everybody collection. I could talk about that for forever, but specifically the t-shirt bra, it's just so comfortable. I don't know, the straps don't dig into you. It's probably the only bra I've ever worn where when I get home, I'm not like dying to take it off, which I cannot express how massive of a feat that is for someone like me. It's just comfortable and it just does what it needs to do. And I am such a fan, which like no surprise, I love everything Skims makes, but here to confirm the bras are as good as you would think that they are. Shop Skims Bras at skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A through 46H. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select podcast in the survey and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. Since the time that we recorded this episode on June 1st, there has been an update to the case. So as of 3.25 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on June 3rd, Derek Chauvin's charge was increased from third-degree murder and second-degree manslaughter to second-degree murder charges. The three other officers have been charged with aiding and abetting second-degree murder. So we just wanted to make that clarification before we started. Hi, guys. I'm Emma. And I'm Julie. And we're the girls behind Comments by Celebs. And of course, today's episode is going to be something different than we have ever done before. As you all know, on May 25th, George Floyd, a 46-year-old black man, was murdered in broad daylight by four Minneapolis police officers. One of the police officers, Derek Chauvin, kept his knee on George's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds, while the other three officers switched between being silent bystanders and active participants, all while George was repeatedly yelling out, I can't breathe. Derek Chauvin did not remove his knee even after George lost consciousness and for a full minute after paramedics arrived at the scene. As of the time we're recording this, which is June 1st, third degree murder and manslaughter charges have only been brought against Derek. The other three officers have been fired, but no charges have been brought against them. Clearly, all of these men need to be prosecuted for their actions. And, you know, this tragedy was not only heartbreaking, but also infuriating because it's not just this act of murder. It's also the fact that black people in our country, which is a country so clearly founded on white supremacist ideology, are being killed by police officers. And this time just happened to be caught on camera. And there's no way that we were going to have the platform that we have and not speak on this and not talk about this. If you've been following the page, you know that we've been very vocal about our support of the Black Lives Matter movement, which we will continue to do. But we just feel so fortunate to have the podcast that we do and to have the engaged following that we do. And we wanted to try to use this episode to not just talk about the murder that occurred, but also some of the racial injustices in our country that 
result in murders like this and like others. And I also think that it's important for us to point out that we fully acknowledge that we are two white girls who have benefited from white privilege, who acknowledge white privilege, who are doing our best to understand white privilege and how it affects our lives and how it affects others' lives. So we understand that we will never know what it's like to be Black in America, but we are doing our best to educate ourselves. And we really want to use this podcast and our platform to be able to educate others as well. Absolutely. And I'll explain the format of how we're going to do this episode and who we're going to bring on in a second. But I first just think this would maybe be a good place to start. You know, I was thinking about myself eight or so years ago and how I would have reacted to seeing this video. And to be clear, I recognize this was happening eight years ago and many years before that. But I'm talking about this particular video. And I was 17 at the time. And, you know, I think I of course, my initial reaction would have been a very human reaction of being heartbroken and outraged. But I think, and I'm embarrassed to say this, I'm just being really honest. I think I may have been naive enough at the time to view this particular tragedy as an isolated incident and to not put it in the greater context of our society and of the greater racial justices that exist in our society. And I obviously know now and have known years before now based on the education that I've been exposed to and what I've learned that this just happened to be on camera, but this happens all the time. And it is really indicative of a major problem we have here. And it's just such a larger conversation. And while I would be lying if I said that there wasn't a part of me that was a little nervous to engage in this conversation, just because I know that we're going to fuck up at times and I know that we're not perfect and we haven't lived through it and we don't know what it's like. I think that the most damaging thing we could do is to be silent. And, you know, I was, I was having this conversation today with my family because we were talking about the fact that, you know, growing up Jewish, the one thing that was ingrained in us, I think, from the time we were able to understand the world was the fact that silence breeds oppression. And that means all oppression. And that's something that we have to acknowledge and we have to speak out against. And, you know, you've seen it everywhere and it's true. It's not enough to be not racist. You have to be anti-racist in this society. Absolutely. And Julie and I will get into a conversation about white privilege and share some of the resources that we have personally found helpful in terms of educating ourselves. But first, what you're about to hear is our conversation with a longtime listener. She's a young black woman named Sierra Pinnell. And you'll hear in the conversation how we got to know her, but we personally feel very grateful to know her and to have been connected with her. And she's a brilliant, eloquent, young woman who it's an honor that she agreed to come on and you know and and you'll hear all of this but as I said to her and, and as she knows very well we fully recognize it is not the job of black people to educate us on white privilege and on racism I get that the work is on us that being said you know there's this concept about giving space to voices that aren't always as heard and we just felt like that one of the best uses of our platform would be able to give a voice to this young, powerful Black woman who has so much to say. And um, it was really an honor to be able to share her words with you guys. So we'll cut to that and we will come back after. 
We feel very fortunate today. We are here with longtime listener and a young woman that we have so much admiration for, Sierra Pinnell. Hello. Hi. 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 Thank you so much for joining us today. I know this was kind of last minute notice and especially with everything going on, we just really, really appreciate having your presence here. Yeah, of course. Thank you so, so much. So I first kind of wanted you to introduce yourself to our audience and tell them who you are, about you. I mean, we are just in awe of you and I want you to share that with everyone. Sure. So yeah, I'm Sierra and I am just a young girl trying to live in this world. Um, My family have kind of like bounced around um, states of living and we ended up in Montana because my mom's side of the family is there. And so I grew up in Montana from about nine and a half until 22. And so back in August, I moved to Portland and, you know, I guess also I should say to everyone, I am black. Um, I guess more in detail mix. My dad is black and my mom is white. And so growing up in Montana, you know, it's not a lot of racial diversity. I Going to school, there was not a lot of black people, um, not a lot of Native American people, not like no one. Um, and so that was really difficult. And I really kind of found myself end of my high school career and then into college where I really found out that I love um, racial justice and really wanting to do that in my life. And so I've just been trying to educate myself um, in the hopes of educating other people and just trying to live a life that I can be proud of, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I think I think it's important just to give the audience a little bit of context as to how we connected in the first place. Yeah. Because um, kind of honestly, exactly in that way. You know, do you want to tell the story? Would you like me to? You go for it. <laughs> okay. <Go> for it. <laughs> so back in February, Julie and I were doing one of our regular episodes. And part of what we were talking about was how during the NBA All-Star Game at the dunk contest, various TikTokers were performing. And we spoke about Charlie and Addison. And we also spoke about Jeliah Harmon, who is the 14-year-old young Black woman who is the creator of the Renegade Dance, which, as you all know, has gone absolutely viral on TikTok. And in our coverage of it, we mentioned her by name, but we didn't explicitly mention her race. And you know, after the episode, we got this really beautifully worded email from you. And I won't read the whole thing, but you know, you basically just started by saying how big of a fan you are of the podcast and how much you like listening. And then um, I want to read this one part. You said, after listening to Monday's episode, I truly felt like I needed to shoot you a message. When discussing the story on TikTok and the young woman who originated the Renegade Dance, you failed to mention that she's Black. This is a very big deal, seeing as there has been decades-old trend of Black people creating dances and white people taking those dances and gaining followers, recognition, and even monetary gain from it. One thing that you often say is that it wasn't the intent of so-and-so to do whatever they did. That is oftentimes true, but what is important is the impact. Trust me, I love TikTok as much as the next person, but I would be lying if I said I didn't get sad every once in a while, scrolling through and seeing all these big TikTokers, mostly white, gaining these huge following over dances that many Black people made. I would have loved for you both to touch on the fact that while Charlie didn't intend to profit off a dance that a young black woman made, she did. And that we should all be paying more attention to who is being lifted up on social media platforms and who is being left out. 
As a young 23-year-old Black woman, there have been several podcasts that I've had to stop listening to as I felt like I wasn't a part of the audience. When I am more or less forced to have a racial lens every day, it is hard to listen to podcasts where hosts don't apply one, whether that's because they don't think or don't want to. I literally never want to feel like I can't listen to your podcast anymore, so I thought I would send you this email in hopes of future improvement. I'm not expecting you both to know everything or get it right all the time, but listening to your podcast for some time now, I feel like you both are very receptive to constructive criticism. And you know, you basically went on to say that one of your least favorite things that people do is when they give constructive criticism or feedback and don't give the person a chance to improve. And I remember seeing that email and immediately you know, sending it to Julie and saying, we have to get on the phone with her. Um, and I emailed you back. We set up a time and we had a conversation where I basically said, you know, tell me, I, I want to learn. I want to be better. And for me, it was such an impactful and eye-opening conversation. And I was so appreciative of the way that you spoke with us. Um, and I just am really forever grateful for that interaction and the fact that it connected us really. Yeah, for sure. I feel like, you know, I kind of, I sent that email, not like knowing or expecting a response and like you guys emailing me back and us talking on the phone was honestly like best case scenario. Um, so it was a very, um, a really good experience for me as well. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was, you know, I, I appreciated, um, I appreciated what you said about the fact that you felt like you could say it, you know, you felt like we would be receptive because, um, we were, and we obviously know that we don't know everything and we want to do better. Um, and I remember at the end of the conversation, I kind of said to you, like, I know it is not the job of black people to educate us. I know that that's our own work. However, you know, when you are, um, offering up those lessons, we obviously want to take them. And so when I emailed you about everything going on here, I felt based on our conversation that it was, kind of the right thing to do just to give you a platform to amplify your voice and to share anything that you wanted to share about what's going on or how you're feeling or anything you want our listeners to know because I know how much I got from my one small conversation with you I can only imagine um what people our audience could get just from hearing you speak oh thank you so tell me you know how how are you feeling what do you what do you want people to know about what's currently going on in our country and what we're witnessing yeah um I think, you know, it's kind of like I read a book one time and I, the main character would always say, like when someone asked them, how are you doing? Like, how are you feeling? They'd always say, um, I've been better, but I've also been worse. Um, and right now I think it's kind of in that worse mode for me, myself. Um, it's really dark. Um, there's a lot of emotions going on. Um, today was a little bit of a better day. Honestly, I took a lot of like just self-care time and try not to go on social media as much because it's been so heavy. Um, so today I'm doing good. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a lot, it's a lot to take in. And I think something that people, uh, I guess like need to recognize, I guess I would say is that if you as a non-black person are feeling so heavy right now, imagine what it is for black people. Um, because this isn't the first time we're hearing about this This isn't the first time we're experiencing this. Um, for a lot of black people, their whole life is this, their whole life is knowing people who have died at the hands of like police brutality. Uh, there's, 
just that's the whole life. And so it is really hard. Um, and you know, I, I wrote an Instagram post, um, yesterday and I hadn't done anything yet cause it was just a lot. And I felt like it was the right time to, you know, tell my friends how I was feeling. And, um, I ended it with just saying, you know, don't be comfortable in your learning and unlearning of racism and, you know, stand up for people of color in your workplaces, in your classes, to your own family, and also reach out to your black friends because they are not doing well right now. And that's the truth. They're not. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's a lot. I have so many thoughts. I have so many feelings right now. And it's just a lot going on, I guess. Yeah. No, I, 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 again, I'm, I, when we were emailing and you said, you know, I'd love to come on, but I don't know how eloquent I will be because I have so much emotion. And the first thing I said to you was like, there's nothing more beautiful than raw emotion. Just let it out. You know, I I really appreciate that. Cause I was like, ah, you know what? I'm just going to say like a lot. I'm going to ramble on. Like, it's just going to be a whole thing. First of all, I think you're far more eloquent than us, and we do this for a living. So <laughs> I was, I was just gonna say she puts us to shame, man, because I, I have your one um, and we have a lot of that. And also, thank you for. And I know you said that you were kind of taking today, so thank you for speaking to us today, even though you were taking today to kind of decompress. And we really appreciate that. Yeah, of course. I mean, if you would have emailed yesterday, I would have said no. But today, I just felt in a better place. So, and I think part of my self care right now is just being able to speak. I feel like I don't necessarily have anyone or feel comfortable in any space right now and talking to my close friends or family about what I'm feeling. And that is awful for me because I just tend to get such like, so in my head and Mm -hmm. then I have all these thoughts and all of these like things running in my head and I can't fully just live my life because they're, my head's so full. So it's Mm -hmm. nice to just be able to talk it all out, I guess. Yeah. I, I, I think sometimes it's, it's, although it's may seem counterintuitive, it can sometimes be easier to talk to strangers or in this case to talk, you know, just out to a platform versus sometimes speaking to people closest to us at times, you know? Yeah, absolutely. You know, something that I wanted to ask you, and I want to be careful in the way that I phrase this, but like I said, you know, it is not the job. And as, as we've spoken about, this is not the job of black people to educate us. But a question that I have for you that I think um, a lot of people, at least people that I have spoken to is on a human level, as white people, what is And I guess, you know, this is a question, of course, it's personal. Everybody is different. But for you, what is the best way, you know, as as us who we want to be allies, but also we just want to be there on a human level for our Black friends who are really uh, struggling at this time, what is the best way for us to do that on a human-to-human level? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've been thinking about that. And I think for me, it would be educating yourself and whether that's reading books, um, watching videos, following people on Instagram or wherever you, um, get your content is so important because you can't fix anything if you don't know anything. And at this point, you know, and for a while now there, there's no excuse for people not knowing something, you know, we, a lot of people have access to Google, a lot of, you know, there's so many ways of digesting information that 
no one should say, oh, I didn't know that because you can easily know that you have a lot of people in your life that probably know that. Um, and so I think it's really educating yourself and then taking that knowledge into your circles and your spaces. And, you know, not everyone is an activist, not everyone that's not their thing, but everyone has really close people in their life who have said something that made you go, Ooh, like that's, that wasn't right. And Mm -hmm. where you had the space to say, you know what? I actually learned this. Maybe not say that. Um, Mm -hmm. I think a lot of, in my own education, I know that there wasn't necessarily a space of learning how um, you should work with people that aren't your same race or gender or, you know, all of those different kinds of backgrounds. And so educating yourself and then bringing it to your, um, your career is really important, I think. Um, so mm-hmm. yeah, it's, and especially now there's so many posts that are saying like, oh, read these books, they're really helpful, or watch these videos. And so do that, read those books and ask questions and then do the work. I really appreciate you sharing that because I think it's one thing to read it on a social media post, but to hear it from you, I just think it, uh, it carries a whole other weight really. Yeah. I think an important thing for people to know is that in this and wanting to change, um, that they ultimately are going to have to give up power and, um, you know, it's going to, it most likely is going to affect you socially um, in your uh, workspaces, financially. It's going to possibly hurt you, but that's what giving up power is and that's what wanting to change the system is. So I think people often shy away from it like, oh, I'm going to lose friends or things like that. And uh, that's how it has to be, I guess I would say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I wanted, if, if you wouldn't mind, if you'd be open to it, I wanted you to talk for a moment about your work with um, Empower Montana. Yeah. I, was, I was reading a little bit about it and I was super interested and I thought that um, our listeners would be also. Yeah. So my senior year of college, we have to do, in social work, we have to do a practicum and that's just a year long hands-on experience um, somewhere within the community and I had known about Empower Montana for a little bit and wanted, really want to do my practicum there. And so I did my practicum, but then I also was their racial justice intern um, for half of the year as well. And so they are a nonprofit um, here in Missoula, Montana, that really tries to um, end discrimination and prejudice um, in communities. And so they do that by going to schools um, and doing workshops, going to businesses, um, holding community-wide events. Um, But then also they do a lot of work, like more small group work um, with youth, which is really cool. Um, And so I worked there and it was such a great experience um, because I felt like I was doing the work that I wanted to do and really bringing the information and knowledge that I had and that the organization had to other people. And, you know, sometimes that was 
going out to schools in Montana that are very rural um, and don't necessarily, not very progressive um, and having a lot of people say pretty racist things, um, closed-minded things, but in that experience, it was also planting the seed for me and that like they are hearing this information and they might fight back on it at this point, but you know, you can't grow without that seed. And so that was a really rewarding experience for me. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, it's, yeah. it sounded like it when I was reading about it, I thought it was, um, I just thought it was super incredible. Honestly, I, I, I like <laughs> every, I'm having the same experience talking to you now that I did the first time, which was, I find myself not really wanting to talk because I just want to listen to you. <laughs> Really, I, I think you are I feel the same way, right? Like I remember, yeah. remember we hung up after our first phone call with her. We were like, "Holy shit!" Like, well, the thing that I remember most when we got off the phone, and I don't even know if if I, we spoke about this so much after Emma, but um, it was the first time that anyone had pointed out the phrase "playing devil's advocate," and I never forgot the fact that you had pointed out the it, the inherent issue with saying that phrase. Yes. And you know what? And you guys have not, you haven't said it since. So <laughs> very <laughs> proud. <laughs> Thank you. We're trying. Do you want to, do you want to explain that to people listening? Would that be helpful? Yes, sure. Yeah. So I think what people don't understand with the whole phrase, like, oh, just playing devil's advocate here is that a lot of people of color, um, have had that phrase thrown out of, out at them, um, when they are trying to bring up racism. Um, and so I know I've experienced that a lot. And when I was in college, um, taking, you know, a lot of sociology classes and, um, psychology classes that have to deal with race and race being brought up and being like, well, you really have to think about this. And someone always white raising their hand and saying, well, playing devil's advocate here. I just think that blah, 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 blah. And so it was a very um, dehumanizing experience, like, oh, your experience doesn't matter. Let me bring in this perspective that ultimately is very racist. So mm -hmm. it's just really being mindful of the words you choose and what you say. Yes. Yeah. You no, know, I, I, that's a perfect example, Julie, that I, to bring up. I mean, after, after our conversation, you know, we just said, and I said this to you, like, we are absolutely going to mess up again. I just know that we're just humans, but we are trying. And, and I was so appreciative of you for, you know, giving us constructive criticism, but in a really supportive way without like attacking us yeah. um, and just being willing to get on the phone with us and explain it to us a little more, more so than can be done over an email. And, um, you know, you, ha I remember I want to, let me find it in your initial email. You had made uh, a joke. Hold on. Let me find it. You had made a reference to, uh, second, I would go as far as to suggest you hiring some sort of on-call racial justice advisor that could give context and information on topics that touch on race and help guide you on how to deliver that information in the most effective way. And then in parentheses, if you do end up going that route, I would definitely throw my hat in the ring for the position, wink face. <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping you found that funny. I, I, you know, sometimes you say things over text and you're like, oh, I hope they like get that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, we, we got it. Um, <laughs> I, I just am, you know, 
I'm just really appreciative to you um, for listening and for being willing to have these conversations with us and to come on and especially at a time when there's so much pain um, for you to share how you're feeling. It, it's, it really is an honor to be able to speak with you. And um, I just, is there anything, any final message for our listeners that you want them to hear from you? You know, I was really, I was thinking that in the context of your podcast and having to do with pop culture, um, I would really, oh, I don't know how to say this. I was, um, I was really thinking when Hannah Brown, the whole Hannah Brown situation happened and with Lana, I was reading those comments on people's posts and, you know, Rachel Lindsay, she made in IGTV. Um, and I was reading those comments and it was just very interesting to me to see who was commenting what and the tone of that, um, and how fans play a role in all of this. And one thing that I kept seeing in comments were like, they're not racist. They're not racist. They're not racist. And I guess I would just say that like, if you are white, you have no place to say who is racist and who is not. Mm -hmm. And um, I guess I was really thinking that, you know, people who love pop culture and are fans of different celebrities, I would hope that in your education that you can not contribute to that kind of, um, you know, when a celebrity does something and then you quickly defend them because that's not, I don't think that's being a fan at least, you know, I think fans of people want them to do the best and want them to be better. And so I think it's just calling out celebrities and saying, you know, what you did was racist or what you did was homophobic or whatever it might be. Um, because I don't think that we should obviously like let them slide by in those situations. Um, yeah, I was just, I was just really thinking on that and how fans play a role in everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's a really important message and for us, for us also. And you said it in, um, you said it in your email and Julie, like kind of says this to me all the time that I think oftentimes I'm more, I can be at times more focused on people's intentions. I know you're not directly addressing us and you're speaking generally, but right. you know, I choose to believe that people have good intentions. But like you said, it's really impact that matter more than intention. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, for sure. And I yeah. think I would also say that I would hope people now have a more racial lens in the things that they do. Not only the things that they do, but the things they consume um, when I was working on Empower Montana, they had this really great activity that was called the frame of reference. And it was this worksheet that had these, um, just like glasses on them. And then within the glasses, there were, um, words like family or sexual orientation, race, education. Um, and the whole activity was just finding out what your frame of reference was in certain situations. And so for me, my frame of reference at the top of my list every day is always race. I always wake up knowing that I am black. I wake up knowing what can happen, what experiences I can have. Um, and so when I'm on Instagram or Twitter, and, or if I'm watching a TV show, I always have that racial lens. And so I think I would encourage other people to have that racial lens too. And 
you know, I was watching, I got suckered in to watching Outer Banks. My <laughs> friends were like, watch it. I said, no, sorry, but of course I did. Um, <laughs> so I'm watching that stupid show and I watched the first episode and there, it's basically, you know, these group of kids and there's this one black character and he is really smart. He has like this merit scholarship, you know, he's like going places, but the group of friends is like always getting into shenanigans, but that are like possibly go to jail shenanigans. And I was just thinking like, oh my gosh, like I, I would hope that if you are white and your friend, like your friend is black and has this merit scholarship, but you are doing things that could possibly danger that, endanger that, don't do that. <laughs> I would say don't do that. Um, you know, it's already so hard for black people to succeed in this country and in the world. Um, so I was just thinking about that and watching that show and being like, man, like even in this stupid show that I was just randomly watching, there are lessons to be learned. And I don't know. I don't know if that made any sense, but that's just what I've been thinking on. No, it totally did. And, and, I, and I watched Outer Banks also. And it's funny because every, like, there were so many tweets. Obviously, it was such a trending show, but there were so many tweets after that was like, wow, they really don't give a shit about, about Pope's interview. Yeah. And there were so many people that picked up on that, that I was like, when you said it just now, I was like, I was like, it, it is an amazing point, And it is a point that other people picked up on too, even though it is just like a random TV show about living in North Carolina. Right. And yeah, it's so, it's so interesting. You know, it's really, I don't think people know that or understand how media and how TV shows really do affect the things we think. Um, my really good friend and I, we do this, very um, awful, poorly put together podcast that I think only our moms listen to. And (laughs) we just, we watch different TV shows or movies that we watched as kids and then kind of dissected in like what were iconic moments and then what like didn't age well. And there are so many things that are said that you're like, oh my gosh, like you would never say that in 2020. But also knowing that that being said in early 2000s, that did have an effect on people. And that's how, you know, people thought. And so it's just so interesting to think about. And I think, yeah, just having a more racial lens in what you're consuming is always important. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, um, I appreciate you just giving that much needed reminder. And I, I, like I said to you today, I'm just so, I feel so fortunate that our paths crossed and that we connected and I, you know, <laughs> in public, behind the scenes, we are allies and we are doing what we can. And, and I promise you, um, it's our commitment to continue to educate ourselves. We want well, our kids. Thank to grow you, up thank you. No, thank you so thank much. You, seriously. We are so appreciative. Of course. Yeah. Of course. How special a person is she, Julie? Oh, beyond. I knew it the first time we spoke to her. I really did. No, I know. I, you know, when I emailed her about this, I fully, it was really one of those things is like, I just want you to know this platform is here if you want to utilize it. And I really had no expectation. And um, the fact that she did was just really touching. And I hope that you all found it as beneficial as we did. And um, 
I just think she has a really special voice that I feel lucky that we were able to amplify. Yep. Um, so we wanted to end with reading one passage from uh, a work that we found really helpful, but I first wanted to just share an experience that I personally had that wasn't the turning point for me because it happened before, but was definitely, um, if I'm thinking in my personal experience of acknowledging my privilege, this was definitely one of the moments where it really hit me. And as most of you know, I did just one year of uh, grad school at Columbia for social work and I deferred the second year when Comments by Slubs took off. But I remember my first day, it wasn't even in class, we were in an orientation and there was about 15 uh, 15 people in the classroom. And the teacher said, okay, we're going to do the privilege walk. And I had no idea what that was. And she lined us all up at the back wall. And she said, if what I'm about to say applies to you, take a step forward. And she said things, I'm just going to give you some examples. So if you had never had to worry about where your next meal came from, take a step forward. If you come from a two-parent household, take a step forward. If you've never had trouble finding a Band-Aid that matches your skin tone, take a step forward. All things like that. And at the end, me and about three other white classmates were so far up at the front of the room, we couldn't go any farther. And the black people in the room and the people of color were so far against the back wall that they couldn't take a step farther back. And I remember turning around and seeing myself pressed up against the front wall and then pressed up against the back wall. And it was a really, um, like, I don't know the exact word. I haven't spoken about this in a while, but it was a, a very eye-opening experience for me, which I know is crazy that I was just having that experience then. It wasn't like I was, you know, it wasn't like I didn't acknowledge the fact that white privilege existed, but to see it so tangibly in front of me, was eye-opening and uncomfortable, but like beautifully uncomfortable. And then to sit down and have that conversation. And she went around and said, how did it feel? She asked each one of us, how did it feel to be at the front of the room? How did it feel to be at the back of the room? And it was that day that I knew like, this is going to be some intense work and I'm ready for it. And I, I don't know, that was just an experience that I will never, ever forget in terms of, I feel like my journey with learning about this, you know? Yeah. I mean, I I actually was watching that video because there's a really um, famous video of the privilege walk where, you know, the guy had lined them up in a field and says, this is a race for a hundred dollars and, you know, take two steps forward, take two steps forward, just like you said. And, you know, the point that he made at the end when he was explaining it was everything that I said to you had nothing to do with anything that you've done in your life. It is all about the circumstances that you've been dealt and I think that also is a really important understanding of white privilege. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, so many of the things that we were afforded, like you said, we didn't, we didn't work for those and we were just granted them and a lot of those just by our skin color. And it's so unbelievably unfortunate that this is, this is the world that we're living in. But I think the first step, at least for me, was like acknowledging it, you know, there's like... What do we benefit from, from acting like it doesn't exist? Nothing. That's the worst thing that we could possibly do. And it was such an uncomfortable, the initial realization, like the really sitting down and doing those fishbowl activities where they put, you know, they, we would sit in the room and they say, white people sit in the middle of the room and talk about what it feels like to be white in this school. And then we would switch 
and the people of color would sit in the middle of the room and do the same thing. And we would both have to talk about what it was like to hear our different experiences. Like it was an uncomfortable feeling, but I, I don't know. I, I wouldn't trade that for anything because I feel like I, I, I just learned so much, you know, than I could have, than I could have never learned in another way. And I, I don't know if I've ever told you this, but one of like the most moving experiences that I know I will never forget was sitting in my classroom and there was a black man. He was around, I would say most of my class were in their twenties. And this man was probably, I don't know, in his late thirties, early forties. And he just sat in front of this room of mostly white women and cried and said, you will never know what it's like to get on a subway car and have all of the white women grab their purses because they view me as a threat. And yeah, you know, there's this man hysterically crying. And of course, you know, and by the way, to then acknowledge the fact that like every single one of us at some point subconsciously had done that. And that's a fucked up thing to say, but it happened. I would, you know, like I would be lying if I said that at one point in my life that didn't subconsciously happen. Not because any part of me views black men as scary, but somewhere inside I had this, you know, this bias that I didn't even know existed. And I, I'll just never forget that conversation. It, it totally, um, it totally really impacted me. Well, that's also the whole reason these conversations are so uncomfortable is because it, it forces you to examine so many things about yourself where, you know, it was, it's easy. It's easier. It's easier to not look inwards and say, what have I done that's contributed to the problem? What have I done that has made me part of this system. And, you know, I have to say that, you know, in, in situations like this that are so heartbreaking and so awful, you know, they say, look for the helpers. Right. And we've seen so much of that also we've, we've seen the helpers, but I also have to say that I have had such amazing conversations with friends and people that I've never had those conversations with before where they're also acknowledging it. Like, I, I do think that there's some, I mean, obviously there is something that needs to be fixed about our system, but the fact that we're having these conversations finally is, is moving us to a place where it's, where it's like, okay, I, I, I actually, for the first time, feel like a sense of hope here. Totally. And you know, I recognize that it is fully on us to educate ourselves. At the same time, though, there's a serious fundamental issue within our education system in the fact that we are not being taught from a very young age about systematic racism, about, you know, the white supremacist ideologies that our country was was built on. Like, that is stuff that needs to be taught to us very early on. You know, the issue is also like, it's not even just that we aren't taught about it at a young age. It, it almost feels like we aren't taught about it at all. And, you know, when I was in college, my senior year of college, I took a criminology class and the class was about the way our justice system operates and the problems within our justice system. And I can honestly say that it was the first time that I had an understanding of systematic racism. It wasn't the first time that I had heard the term. And, you know, looking back, it's like, you heard the term, how'd you not research it yourself? But, and I, and I acknowledge that now and, and I should have at the time. But when I was in this class, 
it was the first time that I really understood what that meant. And I really understood the way that our country operates and the way that our country oppresses. And one of the conversations I remember having in class was, why is this class the first time that we heard, we've heard the term school to prison pipeline? Why is this class the first time that we have been really taught about the war on drugs and what that means for mass incarceration and what mass incarceration is. And it's like, when you think about it, right, you spent how many school days and how many history classes in public school or in private school you went K through 12, where you learned in high school about Reaganomics, right? But the the war on drugs happening during the Reagan administration, during the Nixon administration, it wasn't taught to us. And when you really think about it, honestly, like in your history classes, what you're taught up until in terms of black history is 1964, the civil rights movement, right? But what do you learn about being black in America beyond that? And, you know, this week, both of us, obviously, and I think so many people spent so much time on social media and Why is it that I learned more about black history and what it is like to be black in America from one week on TikTok that I did in 12 years of public education? Mm -hmm. You texted that to me last night. Yeah, and it's unbelievable. It's un-fucking-believable, Julie. Now I know. And it's, it's, you know, it's embarrassing. We just, we have to, we have to do better like individually and as a country. And we just have to, it's not, it's not an optional, you know? And, and I think, you know, we were talking about this, like at this point, you know, there's too many resources we have at our fingertips to not, to not learn more and to not, to not want to do better, you know? Right. Well, that's the thing is that I think that for a really long time, everything that happened, we were able to sum up to ignorance, right? It was like, how many times you heard the phrase, like, they're just ignorant, just ignore it. They're just ignorant. They don't know better. And it's like, first of all, A, how is that an excuse? Mm-hmm. And B, there's, you can't anymore. There's too much information out there. There's too much accessible and easy to get information for ignorance to be any sort of an excuse anymore. Yeah. And we're being confronted with that very, uh, very heavily. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's the whole point is, is that it's it's not just that we're being confronted with the fact that we haven't done our research or that we don't know enough. We're also being confronted with the fact that we play a huge role in that. And the fact that we're uneducated plays a huge role in that. And, you know, the thing that we always talk about is that, like, it's really uncomfortable to have conversations about race. And the reason that that is, is because we are so scared to look inwards and so scared to, like, acknowledge that we've done something wrong and acknowledge that we've done something that has hurt people and that has created a system that oppresses people because it's easier for us to just pretend that it doesn't. Exactly. There's this, there's a real toxicity that comes from this inherent defensiveness that we as white people have. And Julie and I are not excluded from that narrative at all. And it's really dangerous and it's specifically really dangerous because it immediately stops any sort of productive conversation and I know you didn't plan for this transition, but it's too good of a transition to not move into it. Um, we thought that a really kind of powerful way to end this episode would be, while I do trust that we have 
listeners who really care about this and want to do better. I also do know just based on our episodes that people really enjoy when we read certain passages or read certain articles because they feel almost like it's an audiobook. And so I am choosing to trust that people listening to this episode will do their own research. But since I already have you here, I just want to spend a couple of minutes reading a few different excerpts from White Fragility, which is a book by Robin D'Angelo that Julie and I both read in school and we've recently started reading again. And I urge everyone listening to this, if you want to start with one book, for me, this was the best starting place. And I want to just read you the introductory paragraph and then three small passages that were incredibly eye-opening for us and I hope can be the same for you. So the introduction paragraph is, white people in North America live in a social environment that protects and insulates them from race-based stress. This insulated environment of racial protection builds white expectations for racial comfort, while at the same time lowering the ability to tolerate racial stress, leading to what I refer to as white fragility. White fragility is a state in which even a minimum amount of racial stress becomes intolerable, triggering a range of defensive moves. These moves include the outward display of emotions such as anger, fear, and guilt, and behavior such as argumentation, silence, and leaving the stress-inducing situation. These behaviors, in turn, function to reinstate white racial equilibrium. This paper explicates the dynamics of white fragility. And there's a section of the book that's called Factors That Inculcate White Fragility, and I wanted to read two particular excerpts. The first one is Entitlement to Racial Comfort. In the dominant position, whites are almost always racially comfortable and thus have developed unchallenged expectations to remain so. Whites have not had to build tolerance for racial discomfort, and thus, when racial discomfort arises, whites typically respond to as if something is wrong and blame the person or event that triggered the discomfort, usually a person of color. This blame results in a socially sanctioned array of counter moves against the perceived source of the discomfort, including penalization, retaliation, isolation, ostracization, and refusal to continue engagement. White insistence on racial comfort ensures that racism will not be faced. This insistence also functions to punish those who break white codes of comfort. Whites often confuse comfort with safety and state that we don't feel safe when what we really mean is that we don't feel comfortable. This trivializes our history of brutality towards people of color and perverts the reality of that history. Because we don't think complexly about racism, we don't ask ourselves what safety means from a position of societal dominance or the impact on people of color given our history. For whites to complain about our safety when we are merely talking about racism. And the second is racial arrogance. Ideological racism includes strongly positive images of the white self as well as strongly negative images of racial, quote, others. This self-image engenders a self-perpetuating sense of entitlement because many whites believe their financial and professional successes are the result of their own efforts while ignoring the fact of white privilege. Because most whites have not been trained to think complexly about racism in schools or mainstream discourse, and because it benefits white dominance not to do so, we have a very limited understanding of racism. Yet dominance leads to racial arrogance, and in this racial arrogance, whites have no comp compunction about debating the knowledge of people who have thought complexly about race. Whites generally feel free to dismiss these informed perspectives rather than have the humility to acknowledge that they are unfamiliar, reflect on them further, or seek more information. This intelligence and expertise are often trivialized and countered with simplistic platitudes. For example, people just need to... Because of white social, economic, and political power within a white dominant culture, Whites are positioned to legitimize people of color's assertions of racism, 
Yet whites are the least likely to see, understand, or be invested in validating those assertions and being honest about their consequences, which leads whites to claim that they disagree with perspectives that challenge their worldview, when in fact, they don't understand the perspective. Thus, they confuse not understanding with not agreeing. This racial arrogance, coupled with the need for racial comfort, also has whites insisting that people of color explain white racism in the, quote, right way. The right way is generally politely and rationally, without any show of emotional upset. When explained in a way that white people can see and understand, racism's validity may be granted. References to dynamic of racism that white people do not understand are usually rejected out of hand. However, whites are usually more receptive to validating white racism if that racism is constructed as residing in individual white people other than themselves. I mean, how fucking spot on was that, Julie? Oh, beyond so. It's... And that's the thing also is that, you know, we have to take the next steps now, right? Like when in a couple of weeks, it's no longer trending on social media. What are we doing, you know, with ourselves and behind the scenes and also to the world that lets people know that we are committed to this cause beyond just this point. And there are a lot of steps we can take and, you know, educate yourselves, do the reading, do the work. You'll be happy that you did it. I promise. Like register to vote and go out and actually vote. My Mm -hmm. dad reminded me of a quote today, which is power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. And what an amazing quote to remember during this time. Absolutely. So powerful and so true, really. And, you know, for all of us. I know that I have had books on my nightstand that I haven't picked up and that's no excuse. And we are not perfect. We're going to fuck up, but we are trying. And I urge everyone listening to do the same. Don't let the fear of fucking up stop you. And um, we are going to put in our description other resources, places to donate. And um, to the Black community, I just want you all to know that Julie and I are allies, not just publicly, but also privately. And we are working to be better. And we love you guys. And we will see you next week. Let's talk about baby making for a second, because it's really not as simple as it's made out to be. Meaning there's just factually a lack of knowledge surrounding how to get pregnant. And kind of, you know, for many of us, we spend our lives trying to prevent unwanted pregnancy that when you do want to conceive, there's almost a lack of understanding and resources, which is why I want to introduce you to Free to Fertility. Free to Fertility is the only one-stop shop that makes it easier to make a baby with a set of solutions for everything from egg and sperm health to ovulation tracking to conception aid. And basically what Frida is doing is simplifying the journey to parenthood with products that help you go from trying to making a baby. And their products are innovative, easy to use, accessible, from ovulation prediction to at-home insemination kits. They're kind of revolutionizing the conception aid game with the at-home insemination kit, which is almost, you can think of it as like a modern effective solution to the turkey baster. This is baby making simplified. Find Free to Fertility on Amazon, Target, and select CVS near you.